You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to a very special episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and joining me is Daniel Aaron Dilger. Hey, how's it going? It's fantastic. So you're joining us from Cupertino. Yes. Well, actually, I'm in Santa Clara. You're in Santa Clara, but you were I, in Cupertino earlier today. Yes. The, the visitor center is right on the, the county line. So if you go too far back towards the end of the lot, you're actually in the other town. <laughs> <laughs> right on the line. So yeah. the the video that we saw this morning in the, the introduction to the keynote event was one that seemed like it had been shot as you were coming into the theater space. Is that right? Uh, what was... I'm sorry, what are you talking there about? Was, there was an opening video that, that they played in the, the event. And, you know, it started with the, the sun rising over Apple Park and these beautiful aerial, aerial shots of, of Apple Park. And I kept saying to myself, those would make fantastic Apple TV screensavers. And then all of a sudden, we started seeing faces of people walking up the path as they were going into the, the Steve Jobs Theater. And it looked for all the world as if that was shot right before the, uh, and produced right before the event. And they, they played this thing they produced right in time, in real time, basically. Wow, I didn't um, catch that, but I mean, that didn't occur to me, but that's... They didn't run that inside the, the <laughs> that was something only we saw at home? Um, I'm sure it was on the screen, but I didn't see everything on the screen all the time. Sometimes I'm furiously trying to tweet things out or, or you know, make comments. Um, yeah. But it didn't occur to me that, that it was live shots or, or almost live. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. It was a very nicely produced intro video to to the space. They so several things happened today, right? They they spent some time talking about Steve and what it is to honor his memory and how enough time has passed that they can remember the good things and remember fondly as opposed to remembering with a little bit of sadness. And several new devices got announced as well. Which part would you like to start with? Uh, well, just briefly on the Steve Jobs stuff, um, I thought it was really classy how they did that. Uh, there, there was this kind of rumor or you know speculation that maybe they're going to have this hologram of Steve Jobs, as has been done with other you know musicians that have died or something, and they have it. They go on tour with this hologram, and I think there's something kind of weird about that. Um, and so I'm glad to see that Apple didn't do that. You know, they they played an audio recording where he talked about Apple and what what their sense of what they were trying to do. Um, I thought that was really classy. Uh, how they introduced that. And it wasn't, you know, trying to turn Steve Jobs into sort of an animatronic. Well, the, the hologram that, that people use when they're doing a, a Tupac Shakur concert, for example, or when Madonna danced with the characters from the gorillas to the song Feel Good. Um, though though that's, that's basically a modern interpretation of a carnival trick from the late 1800s is what that is. And it's also, those are entertainers. So there, there's a lot more um, license to do things like that. Whereas Steve Jobs was, you know, a, a, a business person and a, a visionary. And if well, they turned him into an entertainer, certainly entertaining. that would be weird. It, it's, yeah. He wasn't a performer per se. Yeah. So it wasn't a song and dance kind of thing. And I think that would have been terrible if they <laughs> had done something like that. I think it would have been really kind it, of, it, kind of wrong. <laughs> Well, so and I'm I think glad they, the way they, they would have agreed I mean, with you, right? To say about it. It's, yeah. yeah, that would have been kind of tasteless. Yeah. So, the first device announced was the Series 3 Apple Watch. Yes. And the Series 3 Apple Watch 
was was announced with a discussion about healthcare, and and also with a demonstration showing one of the members of the Apple Watch team on a paddleboard in the middle of open water. Yeah, that was showing off the LTE capability, which we we knew was coming, and then it was leaked. I mean, we knew quite a bit in advance that the technology well, was was in there and it was happening, and then it was leaked. So you know, it was kind of like. The leaked obvious. One thing. of the things that people got wrong was there. There was a prediction, a pretty strong prediction, saying that Series Three would have no voice communication; that it would be strictly a data device. Yeah, I saw that. I don't know what the reason for that was. Um, it didn't. I don't see why that would be terribly useful to have, because you already have fairly ubiquitous data because you can. You know, if you have, uh, if you know, if you have Wi-Fi at work or at school or or wherever, um, you don't have to carry your iPhone because your watch can generally um, use your saved passwords to jump on networks that it knows about. You live and in you a place actually, with a lot more ubiquitous Wi-Fi than I do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, if if you typically work in places, you can um, frequently use your watch. And there's a lot of people who can't carry a phone at work, but they are somewhere where they have Wi-Fi access, so they get updates and things like that. So you have data service. But, uh, you know, obviously the benefit of LTE data is that you have incoming voice calls. And voice calls on the on Apple Watch are already pretty impressive. It, you know, if you're in your car, for example, is one of the most useful things. I mean, usually you have car integration also, but um, I find it super handy when you're doing something with your if your hands are kind of busy doing something, you can take a call and you don't have to hold it up to your mouth like your Dick Tracy or something. You just work and it works. It's a little bit weird if you're walking down the street and you answer a call. I don't like that. I don't like Bluetooth headsets. I don't like anything where you're talking into a person that's not there. <laughs> I think that's kind of creepy. But Well, that's, that sort uh, of goes for Siri too then, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I feel kind of weird if I'm walking down the street to use Siri, you know. I don't like to talk to myself, but apparently a lot of people do because I see it pretty frequently. But anyway, the, having LTE data means you can take a phone call when you're, you know, paddleboarding or in a variety of circumstances where um, you would not be carrying your phone. So it is actually a, you know, useful thing. Um, we've seen other smartwatches that have LTE data, but what Apple's implemented was this um, new eSIM that basically piggybacks on your existing data plan. I don't know exactly how other smartwatches with LTE data work, but they're not as practical, I don't think. Yeah. Now, I have I, I wonder how this is going to work out, because you commented that there are a number of people who are going to, you know, who have been wearing the watch because they can't take a call at work. Now that the watch takes calls, I wonder if that limits them from having the watch. Well, in some cases, you can't have a, a, a phone because you can't have, you can't place calls. Um, you know, there, there are high security places where you can't carry your phone into. Um, and obviously, if your watch has data service of any kind, that would also not qualify for that. But in general, the the reason why a lot of people can't carry a phone is because their employer doesn't want them sitting on their phone. Right. If, if you're in a service and, position, and using apps, right. If you're yeah. a customer facing service position, it's not polite. So. Right. And, and for example, um, uh, if you're a TSA agent or you work in a hospital or there's a variety of circumstances where you can't be busy with your with a phone in your hands. Um, and if you're wearing a watch, you may not be able to take a phone call, but you can still get updates and stuff. And so that would work whether or not you have somewhere where you have um, Wi-Fi type data service. Definitely. 
the, uh, the the watch comes in a few different flavors, right? The Series 1 is still available. Is that correct? Yeah, so the, um, the 2 is going away, making a way for Series 3, which is faster and more efficient and has the option to do LTE. So you can have an LTE-equipped Series 3 or a one that doesn't have that. And the differentiation is whether it has a red dot on the... Uh, Digital crown. The crown, which some people don't like. Um, there's always, whenever Apple does anything that's like slightly different, some people bristle at it. But, you know, obviously the the difference is kind of to just show off that you have LT data. I mean, it's not like you need an indicator on your watch, but... Um, and there's a practical indicator on the watch, too. Well, it's it a good indicator its for, for third-party sales, right? If you have a used one and you're reselling it and someone wants to make sure they know which one they're getting. That was a huge problem with the the original version of the watch versus the Series 1, which was a slightly revamped version of the original version, right? There, well, I mean, there was I guess a ton you, of confusion. you wouldn't know what version it is until you turn it on, but... Yeah, but but if it's got the red dot on the side, then you know which one you're getting. And I guess you could say the same thing of, of an iPad. Um, cellular iPads have the window at the top, so it makes it quite obvious whether it has it. And you don't need that on the watch, but um, having a red dot, I mean, it's a differentiation. The other most, the, the other obvious differentiation is it has this Explorer watch face that includes the um, LTE signal strength meter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a difference. And it has red hands that I guess coordinate with the red dot is the idea. But it's just a peculiarity of that's how they did it, and so that's that's the difference. But it will make it obvious if you have service or not on your phone, I guess. Yeah. One of the things that I found very interesting was the healthcare discussion, uh, particularly around the uh, heart arrhythmia study for you know concerning uh, AFib. Yeah. There, uh, there is a study that I joined um, that was separately. It was a health kit study. And then the group that was doing it changed it to be sort of a generic web-based thing. And it was just harder to, to do and instead of being an iOS app. Um, but the promise that the kind of the idea was the same as what Apple was talking about is having a way to study the, you know, all this data on your heart and figure out um, what what could possibly, you know, correlating ideas together to see like what causes or what leads up to a an event, a problem with your heart not beating the way it should. Yeah, the you know the it's interesting that they switched in your case and switched your study over because I'm thinking that one of the benefits is being able to really tell how many people are participating participating actively and and see the increase in participation. You know, the I idea think, yeah. that anyone who has the watch can download the app and be a part of the study is a huge, huge thing in terms of data gathering. Right. I think the the, the intent of this was to open it up to Android, which you can, apparently, uh, it's open source, but I, you know, I don't know the full details of why they changed it. But I think that was the motivation. Yeah, kit stuff is open source, so it should work. But It may have required more than they had the expertise to do or, you know, know how to do it. Okay, but, let's um, keep moving through this. In, in addition, in addition to the time. Apple study, well, in addition to Apple study, the other interesting thing is that they're um, not just giving you your heartbeat, but they're tracking so that you have kind of data on your resting heartbeat and your kind of peak heartbeat. 
and your recovery heartbeat and uh, your heart's going crazy <laughs> notifications. So it's not just giving you your heartbeat right now, but it's also showing you uh, kind of long-term trends in terms of how, um, how fit your heart is at rest. If your heartbeat is too fast at rest, it means you're, you should be training more because you, um, your heart should calm down <laughs> when you're resting. And then also how fast you recover after a workout. So that's really useful data that's kind of um, allows people to kind of get a, a sense of how um, well they're exercising. Right. Well, it's almost about the health of the heart as a muscle. Right. Yeah. So let's move on from this. The the watch is cool. A lot of people were, were pleased to see the watch. I'm very pleased with the healthcare idea. I, I think it's not a stretch to say that Apple is is a healthcare company and that Apple will continue to become more of a healthcare company as time goes on. Yeah, it is interesting. Steve, um, <clears throat> Tim Cook made the comment that uh, Apple is doing a lot of stuff in health, some of which has an obvious you know payoff that people are going to buy their stuff. But some of it doesn't have an obvious payoff and they're doing it to do the right thing because it's smart to know why we're dying and how to prevent unnecessary death. Definitely. And suffering. Now, you know? the next up device was the Apple TV 4K. The Apple TV 4K was a uh, sort of an expected release. Um, it's it certainly leaked. that it's, its existence is leaked. How do you feel about this one? What's interesting about the, the 4K is we sort of uh, anticipated, I mean, I, I sort of anticipated, when the original um, Apple TV, the fourth generation one came out, the last major version that they did, that took Apple TV from being just a really basic appliance to being an apps platform that you could run games and apps and had a store. It used the, um, well, at the time, it was one-year-old iPhone chip, the previous year's iPhone chip, uh, which was pretty modern because you know previous versions of apple tv were sort of using an older chip than that it was further down the line um and this year they did the same thing where they're using the a10 uh which is interesting because that's quite a powerful it's actually the a10x so it's actually the, the, the a10x fusion from the ipad pro right so this is a you know powerful chip it isn't they're not just digging out of the garbage bin to say hey what's a super cheap chip we can put in our super cheap TV box. And a lot of people have been talking about how um, Roku is winning the war because they're giving away cheap boxes. And in fact, Roku is giving their OS away for free to a lot of TV makers just to get it installed uh, because Roku makes its money selling subscriptions and stuff like that, not really selling hardware. Well, so it's Apple, primarily TCL who also makes an Amazon Fire TV with, with the same right. Fire OS built. Yeah, these super cheap platforms. So Apple can't um, really compete on price. Because the price is free. It's kind of like Android. You know, Apple can't really compete with Android on price because doing so would be a losing battle. I mean, you, no matter how cheap you can make it, they can make it cheaper. So what Apple is doing is going for quality. And um, the idea of, of having a 4K box, it's not just uh, technically 4K, but it's actually powerful enough to be good at 4K and um, not just be able to play some 4K content which 4K means resolution. You can have high resolution with low quality. You can compress down 4K to the point where you technically have 4,000, you know, 4, 4K resolution, but it's not good. Um, it's it's the Apple's HDR component on, that really makes the difference here, doesn't it? Right. So it's it's, it's high quality uh, 4K. So it's, it's has um, less compression than 
could be, uh, but also like what you're saying with HDR, you're actually adding a lot of other information for color and uh, the dynamic range of color and audio, I believe. It's a whole package of kind of qualitative features that make, gives it a good experience. And it's not only just the content that you're playing, it's also the user interface and the apps, so games and things. And the, the, the game that they showed off was very impressive looking. So it isn't just, here's a 4K resolution. Yeah, that was, was the, uh, the Sky game, yes? Right. Was the, yeah, that was a beautiful game. And basically, it appears that it's multiplayer with iPad and other users on iOS. It's it's eight multiplayers simultaneously around Across the world platform? using yeah, iOS on phone, pad, and Apple TV. So, so the Apple TV is really becoming a credible platform in terms of that it can do quite impressive graphics and that it can be interactive at the same time and multiplayer and things like that. So uh, really seeing Apple TV become something quite interesting. Yeah. And, and just to, just to hit this again, um, Apple TV is, is frequently compared against other set top boxes. Uh, but one of the main thrusts of Apple TV is Apple's really pushing it as being a content, uh, not just a content platform, but a apps platform, which is somewhat novel because, um, there may be games and stuff for other other platforms, but it isn't like the iOS um, ecosystem where you have an app store and you have actually quite a bit of um, development interest because there's a you know a cycle of demand and supply that are both feeding each other. It's very difficult to launch a new platform, and Apple already has a platform. They're helping developers kind of shovel their content onto Apple TV and making it a big enough platform to matter. And if they do that correctly, it doesn't matter if there's comp- competition or not. True. All right. Let's move from there to the next big announcement, which was the iPhone 8. iPhone 8 is big revision on what we saw last year with iPhone 7. It's got wireless charging with the Qi standard. It's got 12 megapixel cameras. It's got faster cameras. It's got the image signal processor that allows you to do lighting changes. What am I missing? I'm forgetting something. Uh, well, the the processor itself, the A11 Bionic, they're calling it that because of the neutral or neural net processing that it has in it. The most obvious feature connected to it is <clears throat> instead of just being able to do portrait mode, like on the 7 Plus, where you can kind of blow out the background and make a nice um, kind of add drama to your photo, it does the same kind of differential depth processing where it uses the two lenses and creates a depth map so that you can actually later change it. Um, at WWDC, Apple went into a lot of that technology, and I'd like to write it up because it's really interesting. and People haven't really talked about it very much. But on the iPhone 7 Plus and the 8 as well, 8 Plus, you have two lenses. You can take a, an image, uh, and what the phone does is it uses the two lenses to create an image and then also a depth map so that third-party developers can later do stuff with that. And Apple only did one thing with it, and that was uh, portrait mode, which blows up the background. But there's other things you could do, and that's what Apple's showing with the the new portrait mode for 8 and the iPhone X, is that it um, uses the same information to do a number of different lighting effects. So you you take a photo, you have this depth map data that's connected to it, and you can either change it when you're taking the picture, or you can apply it afterward 
or change um, the effect that you create where it's changing the lighting in a similar way to where, you know, original portrait mode blew out the background. Well, this allows you to do other effects such as um, changing the lighting on your face mm. and um, also like blocking out the background entirely. So that's an interesting progression of kind of a practical use of, of portrait mode, which is actually quite impressive. Um, when I show other people the feature, uh, their reaction is kind of more than I expect. I'm like, wow, this is really cool. This is like a, a great feature to have. Yeah, and being able to adjust the lighting even after the fact is a big deal. Right, because basically you're just reinterpreting the, the data that you've already captured, where you have a photo and then you have the depth map that, that tells that allows, you know, allows the device to understand what's in the photo so that you can deal with the foreground and the background differently. And now you can so, deal with like your, your facial features differently too, because it can recognize these are your cheekbones, this is your eyes, this is your forehead. You know, you can have a different sort of um, interpretation of what lighting would look like. Let me ask, the, the cameras on the iPhone 8 and the iPhone 10 seem like the same cameras. Do I have that right? Uh, I believe the... I'm trying to think of that. They are not the same because they're horizontal. The iPhone 8 is horizontal, right? Right, but they're both 12 megapixel cameras and they're both uh, the same f-stops speed. The the iPhone 10 has the vertical row of camera and has the optical image stabilization. But in in other regards, there's a lot of similarities between the two devices is is what I'm getting at. There is yeah, there is near feature parity in the rear camera or the yeah, the rear camera. I don't I haven't looked at the specs close enough to know what the exact difference is, but um I was surprised at how much of the feature set is also on the 8 because it has it uses the same processor. I don't know if it's configured any differently, if it's running at a different um, speed or anything, um, but they both, I believe they both have 3 gigabytes of RAM and they both use same the processor, A11 the same Bionic. RAM, yeah. The same so, GPU. So I think the biggest differentiation with the 10 is the, the depth sensor, the true depth sensor array on the front, uh, which gives you portrait mode and selfie, basically, um, as well as face ID and other things where you're involved with scanning your face for like emojis and the emojis. And that's also so, open to third parties. I mean, we're, I'm starting to talk about the iPhone 10. I don't know if you want to get there yet. <laughs> go, no, please go for it. Go, <laughs> but it's not, it's not in this case, it's, it's kind of the same thing where Apple's taking, um, it's a different way of doing technology than the dual camera, the differential 3D depth that was associated with portrait mode on the iPhone 7 Plus and now the 8 Plus. The iPhone 10 does that on the rear camera, but in the front camera, it does something similar, but it uses a structure sensor, which basically um, that's was related to the PrimeSense acquisition that mm -hmm. Apple made it several years ago, um, where it's, it's kind of like Microsoft's Connect. I mean, it's the same technology. Um, it's also, I believe, used by Tango, Project Tango from Google, where it has a sensor and um, emitter that blows a bunch of IR dots or, or IR range, almost IR, 
onto the subject, so you, it's invisible way, so it works even in the darkness. So it captures your face and it interprets very um, nuanced facial differences. So it can capture how your mouth is moving, your eyes, and your expression. And that's what they use to map out onto emojis to make these Animoji ideas. It's implemented as an iMessage application. So if you're chatting with somebody, rather than sending them a clip of yourself talking, you can select one of the common emojis and record yourself. And it's actually really cool. It's, it kinda, it's the kind of thing that makes you happy to, to use because you can be this talking fox and you can say something funny and you're a cartoon. I and have, the way I have never imagined actually... that I would have seen Johnny Ive as an animated chicken. <laughs> or a poop. <laughs> or, or that, yes. It, but it is like super fun to do. And it, it kind of reminded me, one of the things about FaceTime, when, when FaceTime first came out, and also the photo booth, is a lot of people are self-conscious about how they look. I mean, we're kind of all kind of self-conscious about how we look. And it's very different. That's kind of one of the reasons why video phones never really took off because nobody wants to be, you know, on video all the time as we sort of imagined in the sixties and, you know, in, in Blade Runner, everybody, you know, payphone had a video phone on it, but that never took off and nobody wanted to do it. And a big part of it is because people don't want to have to put their face out. Um, now with FaceTime, it is actually, if you care about somebody, you don't really care about how they look, you love them <laughs> and seeing them in person is great. However, when you're chatting with somebody or something, you don't always feel comfortable enough, so you put filters on. And, and you, that's the whole point of Snapchat is that you're putting dog ears or something distracting away from your face so that you can feel comfortable and, and you're communicating without feeling too self-conscious about how you look and if you look good enough. Well, this Animoji thing is kind of right at the same alley where you're taking the communication of your face, of who you are and how you're feeling... And representing it through a character that is comical or, you know, funny or, or whatever. And so it allows you to communicate as you are with sort of an avatar that you don't have to feel self-conscious about. And so I think that's going to be extremely popular. And it doesn't need another iPhone. To, I mean, you don't have to have another iPhone 10 to, to receive those things. And so it's going to be like something that seeds itself. <laughs> it's kind of like the story of, you know, these kids that go to school... And they come home and they say, hey, I need an iPhone because um, I'm a green bubble and I can't be in the message groups with everyone talking because, you know, Android phones just, it doesn't work well to be in a group message. So I need an iPhone so I can be a blue bubble. So the same thing is going to happen when kids start sending out, you know, I'm an animated fox, <laughs> sending out these little videos. You can get those on an Android phone, but you can't send them on an Android phone, at least not yet. So I think there's going to be a lot of people that say, hey, mom, I need an iPhone 10 because I want to be an animated poop. So the animated fox will be received. You can receive that on an Android phone? I thought for sure well, that was going to be an iPhone iMessage only thing. Uh, you're sending it as a video. Huh. So I, I believe you can send it to any phone. Interesting. I'm, I wasn't sure that's how that worked. Okay. It, you know, it's just like in, I, in iMessages, uh, if you take a video or, or send a photo or something, you can send that to right, virtually anybody. In, if you use one of the messaging apps the, to, to send the finger drawing, right, like the heart or the kiss or one of those those things, that only works across iPhone and an iMessage. Um, I believe... 
we'll have to investigate this. Yeah, I don't I don't know how how much um, other apps. I mean, there, there are iMessage apps that that you know clearly you have to have an iPhone to use. But uh, with if, if something generates a video or um, animated clip, some side of GIF, you know, that will send anywhere. Hmm. We're going to experiment. And all the presenters that I talked to that, you know, I asked them that question and they said, yeah, it's not, it just sends a video. So really anybody should be able to get that. I think. Cool. Um, we are nearly out of time. I know that you've got a lot to get on today because you're, you're still out there traveling. So I just noticed a couple of different observations around the, the internet that I thought I'd bring to you. Apple's chips are becoming its competitive advantage. That is incredibly hard for Google or Samsung to, to replicate. Agree or disagree? I've been writing about that for years. <laughs> I'm going to mark you down I've as a few strong that one of my favorite ideas. <clears throat> but yeah, that, that's, that was a huge strategic thing for Apple. Um, it was kind of obvious when they first got into chips, uh, which was slightly before the iPad. It was like around 2008 or nine, I believe, when they bought... Uh, a couple of different chip fabs and uh, what is it called? Um, there was a technology company that they bought that helped them develop the first A4 chip. Um, I totally can't think of the name of it right now, but Apple invested really big in doing their own chips, and that was clearly, you know, genius. It, um, and in contrast, if you look at what Google has been doing, Google has been initially, right after the iPad came out, they thought, oh, we can come out with, with even more feature-laden uh, tablets that we can charge more for. The Honeycomb stuff was not cheaper than an iPad. It was more expensive than an iPad. And Microsoft was also selling, you know, hey, we have, we're selling real, real tablets that run the whole Windows. You know, it's much better than an iPad. But they couldn't sell those things. Nobody was buying them. And so both of them came out with, hey, we got super cheap tablets too. And they couldn't even sell those. But even in smartphones, both of them were kind of, going down market and saying, hey, we're going to have the, the cheapest thing that's going to be really big in emerging markets, and we're going to blow down the price of phones really low, and we're going to do that by using the super cheapest stuff and the super basic GPUs. And they achieved very impressive price points. I mean, like the Nexus 7 was super cheap, with about $150 or something, but um, it didn't please people. It didn't please enough people to matter. And by following this sort of like we can make super cheap devices that are cheaper than Apple. They ended up with this problem of that's all they have now. And if you look at what, what would have happened to Apple, if Apple had gone into China and said, hey, like what they were told by all the analysts, the only way we can enter China is if we have, you know, a $300 iPhone or a $250 iPhone, they could have done that. But instead, by, by going into China with a premium iPhone, they stuck out, they, they claimed the entire premium territory. They still have like 80% of the premium territory and nobody's really competing against that very hard. Everyone else is trying to make cheaper devices and they're selling lots of those cheaper devices, but they're not making any money on it. Apple's making money on the, the premium territory. And if they hadn't done that, they would probably not be in China today because if they were trying to compete against Chinese makers that don't have to make a profit because they're supported by the government, um, they wouldn't be able to do that. There's no other Western makers that have been able to enter into China with, you know, low priced hardware. So by by going um, by developing their own premium chips, and now they're getting into premium GPUs, they've been using the best GPUs on the market. Now they're making their own. Um, that's really going to solidify Apple and make it very difficult for anyone to compete against that. Because how do you 
how do you build up a big enough base of premium now that Apple's already taken it? So Apple's in a really good position from from developing its own chips. Yeah, along those lines, I was looking, and so people were starting to run Geekbench scores on the iPhone 10 and the iPhone 8, and it looks as if that that processor that that device compares about equally with a MacBook Pro 13-inch equipped with Touch Bar. Okay, so that it is very impressive that those numbers are so high. I, I think it is useful to point out that. Um, Geekbench running on a, a desktop class processor is not exactly the same thing as Geekbench running on a mobile processor, and they are totally different applications. But the fact that Apple has achieved that level of performance on a mobile processor is very impressive. I mean, Does it intrigue to, you at all about the idea of Apple making ARM chips for any other kind of, of computing device, server, console, traditional computer? Um, there's always that possibility that Apple could do that. And, you know, they've proven portability in ways that no other company has. I mean, they've moved the Mac from 68K to PowerPC to Intel in a way that, you know, no other company has really done that. Um, <clears throat> at the same time, however, iOS devices sell like 250-something million units a year. Apple sells something around 20, 25 million Macs a year. I do not think that it's likely that Apple is going to work really hard to take conventional computers and divorce themselves away from Intel. I don't think there's enough money in it. I don't think there's enough point to do that because right now Intel is basically funding all the work needed to do what has to be done on a desktop computer to make it a good product. Now that might change and that, you know, it's, it's, it's also certainly possible that Apple could scale up its GPU at some point. Although the GPU that they developed for, uh, iPhone 8 and iPhone 10 and probably, you know, certainly future iPads and everything else. Um, that GPU was developed for mobile devices and applications. I don't know how much it could scale to compete with something like NVIDIA. I, I wrote a story about that before. You know, it's, it's possible that they could get into NVIDIA's business a little bit. Um, there's a, another, there's a whole lot of other uh GPU businesses that Apple is not apparently interested in, in terms of server farms and, th and stuff. But um, you know, those are potential things that Apple could get into if it wanted to. They're they're a different type of scale. So the kind of products that that um, Nvidia makes, for example, are very different than the kind of products that Apple is building for its volume, very profitable business of making mobile devices. Yeah, I think it, it's it seems more to me that Apple's interested in it from the machine learning aspect. Certainly, yeah, the applications are, are the same in, in different things. I think it's more likely that Apple will take the technology they have in chips and GPUs and go downward to more mobile stuff. And we're already seeing that with the, the chips that they're building for, you know, originally the iPhone turned into the iPad, turned into Apple Watch. And... Um, there's other smaller chips that are in their AirPods and in the um, the Beats line up, the W1 and W2. And they're using those same chips in Macs to do things like the touch bar. So there could be expansion of, of that. Um, right now at this point, I don't know if it makes sense that Apple would make a kind of hybrid, you know, sort of something in between the Mac and the iPad where you have a, you know, Basically, a netbook is what people are imagining that Apple's going to make. 
or like a super low-end laptop, I think that would have have the effect of sort of killing Intel Max because you'd you'd be taking something that's twenty million and turning it into something that's you know ten million, and then they have ten million worth of iPad Max. So you're you're fractionalizing the the macOS market. Is, is what it seems like to me at this point. That the, right. All those things so could let's, change. Let's but. move on from that. What was the thing that most impressed you during the event? iPhone 10 and the dramatic um, changes they made to iOS and how it works. They got rid of the home button. Um, we, I mean, we kind of knew some of the stuff was happening, but some of the specifics of how they did that, changing the gestures. One of the things that we wrote about in the hands-on was that... Uh, they're making a bunch of changes and a lot of people don't like changes. You know, when Vista came out, everyone was just kind of confused. It's like, why is, why is windows changing? So for Apple to go out and just radically change iOS could have sort of a blowback of people saying, Oh, I don't like it. You know, I'm, I'm used to the way it's working. The way they did it with making those changes attached to iPhone 10, which is a thousand dollar device means that the people who are getting iPhone 10 are intentionally signing up for a, a new experience. They want to use these new features like the face ID and the facial scanning, you know, the, all the cool things that are related to that with Snapchat and the, um, the emoji stuff that Apple created and all the things that, that uh, developers are thinking up. It'll be an opt-in sort of thing where people are paying a premium to get the latest thing and here it works differently. So you flick up and you flick down from the corner and you flick up from, uh, Flick down notifications on the left side, and well, you you, you so flick up and then pause to get the rest of the uh, interface, right? Right. And a lot of those, uh, especially the flicking up and flicking up to pause to do the home and, and um, switch between apps, is similar to the new iPad experience on iOS 11. So that's an example of them changing it for sort of everybody. But um, there's a sort of gradual changing of hey, this is our direction of where we're going. And if you still want to do things the way that you're comfortable with, you can buy an iPhone 8. And it's, it works the same way as the 7 and the 6 did before it. And so I think that's kind of an interesting way of rapidly changing the sort of, here's our, here's our forward uh, envelope, and it's pushing along rapidly, and you can run along and jump on it and be among the first people that are using this new way of working on things. We think it's better without radically changing everything and having people be sort of upset that, that things aren't as common as they used to be. Or, or, you know, some people just don't like change at all. And I think it's kind of in parallel to, you know, the iPhone SE. There were a lot of people that just didn't like the idea of a bigger phone. And over time, I think people are going to say, you know, the, the benefit of having a even a slightly bigger phone is just so much better that, yeah, now I'm going to buy an iPhone 8. Or now I'm going to buy this iPhone 10 that's actually has an even bigger screen, but it's kind of a, the same size as the six, seven um, regular sized iPhone. But there's some people that you know cling to that. I want that you know experience I had with the iPhone 5. So I think kind of making a having the combination of rapid change with also gradual change, so you can kind of pick at your own speed how fast you want to be on the the cutting edge. I think that's an interesting way of deploying new technology without it being sort of a turnoff for people who don't want things to change too quickly. Definitely. 
Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to have more from you on AppleInsider.com, where you'll be sharing your your hands-on thoughts and your opinions about this. I, I'm really glad that we could talk. Yeah, thanks for doing all the, the work on the podcast. I appreciate it. All right. Daniel Aaron Dilger, everybody. You can read more from him on Twitter at Daniel Aaron. Is that right? Good, I remember. D-R-A-N. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and at Apple Insider. We will be back on Thursday with even more.